This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of this land. And we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. It is not the fashion to see the lady, the epilogue. But it is no more unhandsome than to see the lord, the prologue. If it be true that good wine needs no bush, tis true that a good play needs no epilogue. Yet to good wine they do use good bushes, and good plays prove the better by the help of good epilogues. What a case am I in, then, that am neither a good epilogue nor cannot insinuate with you in the behalf of a good play? I'm not furnished like a beggar, therefore to beg will not become me. My way is to conjure you, and I'll begin with the women. I charge you, O women, for the love you bear to men, to like as much of this play as please you. And I charge you, O men, for the love you bear to women, as I perceive by your simpering none of you hates them, that between you and the women the play may please. If I were a woman, I would kiss as many of you as had beards that pleased me, complexions that liked me, and breaths that I defied not, and, I am sure, as many as have good beards, or good faces, or sweet breaths will, for my kind offer, when I make curtsy, bid me farewell. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was the epilogue from As You Like It, read by our guest this week. She is a Green Room award-winning actor and singer who's worked for most of the major theatre companies in Australia. Her credits include Wake in Fright, Miss Julie, The Cherry Orchard, Clybourne Park, Richard III, Private Lives, and many more. She also appeared in the Australian casts of An Officer and a Gentleman and The Book of Mormon. For Belle Shakespeare, she played Rosalind in As You Like It in 2015. Her screen credits include Wentworth, Rush and Diary of an Uber Driver, and she currently has a recurring role in Neighbours and will appear in the forthcoming feature film Long Story Short, directed by Josh Lawson. In 2014, she was nominated for Helpman Awards for both Best Female Actor in Mountaintop and Best Female Actor in a Supporting Role for the Government Inspector. It is my great pleasure to welcome Zara Newman. Zara, welcome to Speak the Speech. Hi, James. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is so wonderful to have you here on this final episode of our podcast for this season. Yeah, yeah, you're it. You're the finale. I didn't know. I, I was the finale. Oh, no, pressure's on now. <laughs> no, but, that, I mean, how great that um, you've, you've done the epilogue. This is the epilogue for our show this year. Yes, of course. Very fitting, yeah. So this obviously happens right at the very end of As You Like It. Tell me, what do you love about this speech? I think the epilogue operates on two levels analytically you know in terms of analyzing a Shakespeare or the construction of a play but Mm. also it it's very fitting in the performance in the performing Mm. of as you like it so I found that it was so necessary when I was 
doing the show, I was so grateful for that epilogue. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. When I, by the time I got to the end of the show, all I wanted to do was stand on stage, look mm. at the people who had just witnessed the haphazard thing that we had just put together mm. um, and, and, and just uh, touch base with reality with them yeah. again. Mm. And it's, this, you know, the quality of the epilogue is hyper theatrical. It's meta. Mm. Um, mm. And, it, and it just felt, it felt like such a breath to be able to land back in, hi, you just witnessed a thing. We yes. just performed a thing for you. Did you mm. like it? Was it good? Mm. But take what you want, discard yeah. what you don't, yeah. um, go off yeah. into the world and let's be nice people. You know, it yeah. just, it yeah. felt yeah. like, it felt like, um, yeah, like, you know, without sounding too, um, you know, Pollyanna about everything, but, um, you know, getting back to origins of theater and, you know, campfire kind of ways of doing things. So, um, yeah, on a personal level, it felt, uh, so necessary and I was so grateful after being this speedy mouth of words and ideas and concepts driving just this mouthpiece inside of the show to just have a very simple you know it's not uber complicated language or anything like that and um yeah and also you know it's I believe correct me if I'm wrong it's the only epilogue in Shakespeare that's written in prose so it you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that kind of uber formality around it or, or anything like that. So, um, yeah, it felt, it felt like a massive relief. And I think analytically, you know, if you're analyzing the play, the, the epilogue also functions, I think, as a way to bring the audience and the characters together to go, okay, we've just exited this realm of possibility, Arden, this land where anything can happen. There's no time. Things are strange. People are being weird, you know? Um, and now we're landing very much in practical reality. We're, we're bringing everybody back to you know, which happens in the play in terms of the marriages and the God that comes down and then the Dukes come back, the court comes back. But also I think it's a way of making the audience part of that return to and, reality. And Shakespeare allows you then as the actor to strip strip away the character. I mean, and presumably originally, you know, it was a, it was a young boy or a, or a young man um, taking off this costume. Yes. Uh, but, but how did you make that distinction between it's, it's Rosalind and now all of a sudden it's Zara or gradually becoming Zara again? I think um, I think by the very nature of the play, which is about, ooh, I'm stepping into, that happens inside of the play anyway, right? Mm -hmm. You've got Rosalind, who's a character who then goes, oh, we've got to run away with, my, with her cousin. We're mm -hmm. running away to the forest. I'll just be a man, a swashbuckling yes. Ganymede, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's already happening inside of the play, this idea of people stepping into roles, for want of a better word. Um, and I always find, you know, it's, I think it's also this is slightly tangential, but um, it's also a bit of an argument within uh, theories around acting. I don't ever believe that I fully become another person. Of course, an element of Zara is always present because I don't have a mental health issue. You know, I, I'm not, I, I don't believe that I become another person. Um, so I think that, uh, yeah, I think that that's always there. And, and actually what it does when you have, um, the benefit of pieces like like the epilogue at the end of As You Like It is that it allows for that actor who's been up there 
prancing around <laughs> for two hours, you know, in front of, in front of an audience is that it allows for a connection, um, and, and like a stop just a, a yeah, a, a, a connection of breath, stopping acknowledgement. Um, that's very kind of precious and really only happens in theater. You know, it doesn't happen in film. It doesn't happen in other performance spaces. And it's, it's so, such, such a lovely, um, way to be. Yeah. And I mean, in, in the speech, um, Rosalind says a play, a good play doesn't need an epilogue, she says, but, but plays can still be enhanced, um, with a good epilogue and then compares that to wine needing bush or not needing bush. Now, what does that mean, please? (laughs) Oh, look, I'm not going to lie. I definitely for a few weeks said those words without fully knowing what the wine bush reference was. Um, I didn't get to performance without knowing it, but I definitely was faking it through some of the rehearsals. And eventually I think I just said to people, I was like, what is this? Who knows? knows what this is about. <laughs> so apparently, as I understand it, the wine in the bush reference is about um, how they used to sell wine in Elizabethan England, how they would advertise that they had a good wine was they would hang this bush out the front of the tavern. And so that particular bush would represent, ooh, they've got the good wine on today. They've got a good barrel on. And it was it was a form of an ad, of an okay. So it was, it was a marketing technique. Yeah, That's interesting. it was marketing. So, yeah. yeah so, uh, which, is, which is great because the epilogue in a way is that. It's like, let, let I hope that you leave with a good impression of this play. And it's a seduction as well. I mean, look at this language yeah, where she's talking to the women and then she's talking to the men and saying, I would kiss as many of you as had beards that pleased me. It, there's, a, there's a seduction of the audience going on yes, here as well. which I think is is an extension of of the um charismatic dare we say peacocking that that Rosalind uh goes through in in the body of the play I mean I think once once she's in Arden and she feels very she starts to you know stretch her limbs and she starts to feel very comfortable with the role that she's assuming and her ability to teach Orlando how to yeah. love counsel mm-hmm. him in the ways of love um mm. she gets uh, she gets quite cocky with it all you know yeah. and um yeah. uh but also she's incredibly charming like her alacrity and speed of thought is so oh, yeah. attractive um and so i think th- that continued play and conjuring and charming into the epilogue is is part mm. of that I think one of the difficult things for me with Shakespeare's comedies, but and also some of the tragedies like Romeo and Juliet, is that the the women, the young women, seem to just run laps around these blokes. The the, the guys have no idea. You know, I, I think about Twelfth Night. You know, what what does Viola see in Orsino? Uh, I think about Romeo and Juliet. You know, Juliet's clearly smarter than Romeo, and it's the same in As You Like It. I mean, Rosalind. What does she see in Orlando? What is it about him that, and how do you find that within him? Because she's so much more cluey and bright and and sharp. And uh, how does she fall in love with Orlando? I think that I think that she sees a similarity of experience. I think the clue. I mean, I also think we can fall into traps sometimes of needing to explain everything. You know what I mean? Particularly when it comes to Shakespeare's. Um, going, why is this happening? Why is this like this? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. You know, sometimes it just is because it is. But I think with, um, as you like it, and in terms of Rosalind's attraction to Orlando, which also seems to happen on the spur of a moment, it's like, I saw you wrestle, take my chain. I'm in love with you. You (laughs) What is is going on? And 
definitely I struggled. I mean, there was a lot that I struggled with in, in, in the, you know, quote unquote solving of the play and the performance. But, um, oh my gosh, that chain moment. I was just like, what? I don't know. Am I smiling? Is it, I don't, yeah, it was, it was very (laughs) challenging, but, um, I think it's something, I think the clue is in recognition. I think that Rosalind at court, and this is also reflected, I think in the language, again, this is like very analytical kind of assessment of the play. Um, but you know, the, the language in Rosalind particularly and Celia, but everybody at court in the first, I don't know, third of the play or something is very, you know, it's in verse, it's very structured. It's very, you know, makes sense. It operates in straight lines. Um, and I think that's reflective of the fact that Rosalind is, is sort of hamstrung. She can't, things aren't working right. She, her uncle's being strange. She doesn't fit in here. She doesn't have agency. Um, and I think that she recognizes that in Orlando, she recognizes a similarity of circumstance and that feels, you know, that's attractive. That is, oh, I recognize a kindred spirit there. Um, so I think that, um, that is the is the basis of um the attraction to yeah, Orlando. Right. Yeah. 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 There's a wonderful scene between Rosalind and Jayquiz uh that you played with John Bell where they sit down and 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 riff with each other. Yeah. What was it like working so closely with John and 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 doing that great scene together? Um well I think uh you know it's always it's always such a privilege and uh, really fun to work with people who have such a breadth of experience, like uh, as John does, um, you know, and it's always intimidating as well because they make it look very easy. (laughs) (laughs) They do the first read and it's okay. We'll just do that. I'll see you on opening night, you know? Um, and so it's like, Oh gosh, how do I, how do I do that? Um, so no, it was, it was really lovely to be able to, to do that with John and to share the space with John. And I think also that performance, uh, generally for John and, and was held, I think, uh, knowingly, it was a very knowing sort of mm. holding of John inside of that show right. being that it was his last performance at, you know, at that time yeah. it was the last performance that he was going to be doing after just, you know, having left. And so mm-hmm. there was a lot of, um, yeah, awareness and ceremony around it that felt yeah. very fitting for Jaquees as a as a character and yeah, his journey yeah, through yeah. the play. Mm. Um, yeah, and so in another way, you know, that scene, those scenes, and John inside of the play were operating on a meta level yeah, as well, gotcha. which was yep. mm-hmm. which was kind of really nice to be able to give space to that. Yeah. So. Zara, as a young person growing up in Jamaica, I think you came to performing quite early, quite young, uh, through a charity group. So how did yeah. that come about um, through through song and through theatre and theatrical performance? How did that happen? Yeah, um, so there's not really... Uh professional avenues for performance in Jamaica. Um, There is for dance, but not so much for acting. A lot of the acting that happens would be equivalent to what we would say is like amateur dramatics, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's an affiliation called the Missionaries of the Poor, which is run by um, a priest Mm -hmm. uh, called Father Holong. Um, And he basically started this thing in the 80s where he would just 
coalesce all of these very talented musicians, dancers, actors, singers, mm. and put on stories, you know, biblical stories, ancient stories, with heavily influenced by Caribbean flavor and Jamaican, sure, you know, sure. idioms. Um, and all of that money would go back into um, feeding people in disadvantaged communities, doing AIDS work in mm -hmm. those communities and setting up homes and homeless shelters and stuff like that. So, mm. um, yeah, at a very young age, I started performing with them. And it um, it just, I think it came through my speech and drama. You know, I did speech and drama when I was in primary school right. there. Yeah. We would mm. learn how to recite. You know, it's kind of, yeah. it's, it's funny. Mm -hmm. I think people don't realize or know so much that jamaica is you know it's a colonial outpost it's heavily influenced by Very you know a so, british yeah. mm -hmm. british history and so that concept of doing you know articulation and punctuation oh, yeah. and all of those <laughs> sorts of things so we um we did a lot of that in primary school and had competition you know speaking competitions yeah, oratory right. and all of that mm -hmm. and it was through doing that in primary school and then one of the shows needed a young child, a young girl for one of their shows. And then once I did that, I just knew I, it was, I'd never had so much fun. You were hooked. And yeah, I was, <laughs> I was hooked. Um, and then, you know, moving to Australia just provided more concrete avenues to realize that yeah. in a more, um, in a more real way beyond it being a fun thing. So was that quite a culture shock coming to Brisbane at the age of 14 in the early 2000s? How was that for you and your family? Uh, it was a massive culture shock. Massive. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, it takes a long time, I think, to be able to look back on significant moments at, in your life that happen at very, um, significant moments that happen at significant times of life. So being a teenager, you know, um, it takes a long time to look back at those moments and find language to fully explain and articulate what is actually going on and what's happening because in the moment it's, it's hyper emotional and you can't explain what's happening. Um, but absolutely it was a, it was a massive culture shock on many levels. And also, you know, it's not, it's not binary. It's not good or bad inside of, inside of the culture shock is also, like a hefty dose of appreciation and acknowledgement for the privilege that I was being thrust into in having the opportunity to come to somewhere like Australia. I think, you know, some people might be surprised to hear this, but like I had never had hot water come out of a tap until I moved mm. to Australia. Mm. You know, I was bathing out of a bucket. Now I'm not I wasn't steeped in poverty in Jamaica, but but that middle class people bathed out of buckets because we didn't have right. hot water and it didn't mm -hmm. come out of taps. You know, we only had cold water. So um, just little things like that, that mm. just kind of give a bit of context to the kind of accessibility of things. And certainly in terms of, um, as I said before, certainly in terms of what I wanted to do with my life, um, ha having having that be much more available to me. And I think specifically as it has to do with culture shock in not having a well-defined diaspora of Caribbean people yes. in Australia yeah. or mm -hmm. in Brisbane, certainly mm -hmm. not that me or my family knew about or had access to. It may be different now. Um, that makes a difference, not having um, places where you can go and be held in, inside of your culture. Um, and so 
yeah, you're struggling with that, which is a, a kind of loss of identity and assumption that you need to compromise on that identity, read, assimilate, <laughs> uh, uh, at the same time being incredibly grateful for the opportunity to be here. You know, it's not a binary, it's not good or bad. It's, um, it exists in a very murky sort of place. Yeah. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today, Zara Newman. Now, Zara, during this childhood and this upheaval of moving to Australia, where did Shakespeare first come into your life? Was it in Jamaica or was it at school in Brizzy? You know, I'm going to say that I think it actually was in Australia. Um, I don't think... I, I knew about Shakespeare in Jamaica, and I think I even read very abridged versions of Shakespeare for some English literature classes. But a lot of the literature that we did in Jamaica was Caribbean influenced. You know, we, we were reading Caribbean authors and, and studying stuff about our own region. Um, not so much about <laughs> old, old white men. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, so... The funny thing about the exposure to Shakespeare is I actually think that my first encounter with Shakespeare was actually doing a youth show of Midsummer Night's Dream and I played Titania. I actually think I did a Shakespeare before I saw a Shakespeare. Yeah, wow, okay. Which I think is yeah. strange. I mean, I'm I'm trying to remember, but I actually think that that's what happened. You know, I was 15 or something and... Yeah, um, cool. I think it was Harvest Rain Theatre in in Brisbane. They had like mm -hmm, a youth mm -hmm. summer program and we yeah. did a production that, that was a, an abridged version with music and songs, you know, contemporary songs. Yeah, yeah. And I played Titania yeah. and I think that was my first encounter with um, Shakespeare language. And then, then, of course, from that, then I, I, you know, saw Shakespeare's. And I also, I went to university very young. I think also my, my childhood sort of, strange in that way in that I went to university when I was 16. I started my first course in Toowoomba, 16 or 17. Um, right, at USQ. At USQ, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely remember there was a production of Hamlet that was put on there that was put on over the January break. So when we all got there, it was the first thing that we saw as incoming oh, students yeah, yeah. from mm. the third year graduating students. And so mm -hmm. I remember that being mm -hmm. very impactful at well. It was outside, it was in the park. They did it at night. It was so dark, you know, it was, mm. it was hyper theatrical. It was really wonderful. Um, yeah. And then you moved to Melbourne, right? You went to the VCA. And then I moved to Melbourne. I went to VCA and then, you know, Shakespeare abounded. No, not really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in those early years of watching Shakespeare productions and uh, seeing others put it on, did you see much of yourself being represented up there on the stage? No. I mean, I saw women on stage, but I didn't see uh, any people of color. I mean, the only representation that I saw for myself was myself. I guess I was I was in the doing of it as well. But, but um in terms of seeing myself be represented, no. Um, and, you know, I think also sometimes what's a bit difficult for uh, uh, people who don't have this experience to understand is that um, you get to a certain point where 
the compromise, the leaps that you're having to do. I'm constantly having to go, oh, I'm not being represented and do make extra steps to think about myself, putting myself into it and then making yes. it okay, explaining it back, you know, the, yes. that sort of makes sense. Yes. I'm having to do a lot of work because none of the representation is, is happening for me on stage. And that, that, um, compromise and extra work happens in a lot of stuff. You know, it happens in literature, it happens mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. movies and theater and music and lots yeah. of stuff. Right. Um, and you actually get really good at it. You get really ad mm. adept at, at being able to just go, mm. Oh, I'm not being represented. That's okay. I do. I do all the steps in my head and mm. I explain mm. it mm. and I make it work and it's fine. Mm. And I don't think about it anymore because it's been so embedded and it's so accepted mm. into the functioning of a society um, yes. that there are lots of people out there who are watching stuff, who want to be represented, who aren't, who are yeah. doing lots of work themselves to make that okay. Yeah. And look, presumably you're particularly good at it, uh, but perhaps some people are not. No. And I think, um, you know, one of the big problems is young people um, getting quite demotivated by, by not seeing themselves. Yeah. Represented. You know, and I think there's, I was having this conversation the other day with friends of mine that, you know, in my time working professionally as an actor and certainly going from studying to now working over that span mm. of, you know, 15 years or something, um, the conversation has changed so much. Like it's a completely oh, yeah. different landscape, the awareness, mm. um, the recognition, the acknowledgement, the having difficult conversations and people being held to account for, yes. um, yep. for, uh, blind spots. Um, yep. you know, mm -hmm. all of that stuff is much different. And so that, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel that. And I think it's really great. I think people having power and agency to be able to say, actually, that's not good enough. It's not good enough yes. that you think there's no non-white people who can do this. I don't accept do that. that I don't yeah. buy that. Mm -hmm. um, and work harder. Just be work harder at it. You yes. know, I yeah. think that's, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's wonderful. And certainly, you know, there, there weren't those avenues for me when I um, encountered difficulty as a younger actor and certainly as a student. Um, I didn't have those avenues. I didn't have other voices. I wasn't surrounded by say an immigrant population or Caribbean population or any, you know, I, I didn't have those groups to, um, align myself with. And so I, what that manifested as I think outwardly was people just going, Oh, she's a bit abrasive and angry. And it's like, well, there's a lot more to that. <laughs> yeah. Which, which of course is, you know, another stereotype in order to, to keep people silent um, by, by saying that they're being abrasive and angry. It, it silences them. Yeah. It, it makes them, um, it, it makes it their fault yeah. basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and makes other people less accountable. Yeah. I would say, you know, just talking about representation and, and, um, you know, people seeing themselves on stage. I also think there is some accountability to be had in the language of criticism that happens mm -hmm. around productions. And oh, so, my God, yes. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think there's accountability at every step of the way, right? Every step of the way. People who cast, people who produce, the types of plays you put on, the people who critique the plays, the people who are in the plays, the people who like the plays. I think there's accountability all around, right? But I think in terms of my experience, something that I found really problematic to deal with, and I actually encountered this when I did As You Like It, 
was that um, there was criticism leveled at my performance in the show that had nothing to do with my technique or success in technique or ability to speak the words or communicate ideas clearly or drive action or be funny or it wasn't any of that criticism. It was, you know, she looks like a lost member of the Supremes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, why, why has she got this fake American accent? Oh boy. She doesn't, she doesn't sound like everybody else. And, mm. and, and I was like, so that's just my mm. voice. Everybody else on stage is speaking yes, in their voice. Yes. Yeah. You know, and it's also happened to me. It happens particularly, I think, in, in um, classic mm. plays or plays that have a strong cultural identity or mm. memory in the zeitgeist yes. where people go, I know how yeah. this goes. I know how the play is. I know what this story is. I know who these characters are. And then they're disappointed when they don't have that feedback right. loop coming mm. back to them of that exact dream or fantasy that they had in their head of what that character should be like or how the story should be told. Um, and yeah, so I, so I think there is, you know, there, there needs to be some accountability and calling out of criticism that is actually not criticism because that has nothing to do with, you're not saying Zara Newman was terrible in the show because she wasn't funny and she didn't do any of the jokes and her ability to wrap her, our articulators around the language failed and you know, all of that sort of stuff. You're talking about the fact that I look different to everybody else on stage. I sound different to everybody else on stage and dramaturgically that is problematic for you as an audience member. Now that is a much bigger conversation that we need to have. Why is that problematic for you? I also think it's problematic for you because I may be one of, I may be the only person on stage who looks different to everybody else, or I may be only one of two people. And that in itself is a way of creating an outsider narrative around an attempt to be inclusive, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense, <laughs> let me tell you. It makes absolute and complete sense. And to be honest with you, I think the the, the status of theatre criticism in this country is absolutely appalling. And I believe that that is one major factor. Uh, I think, you know, and I think, of course... Of course, as as Rosalind says at the end of the play, there's some of this, maybe you didn't like it, take what you like and discard what you don't, you know? Of course, there are going to be people out there who, for whatever reason, it's the nature of our, of our work that we make. Some people have affinity for it and some people don't. Some people like some of the stuff and some people don't. And that is totally fine. But when your criticism, when it's your job, and you're supposed to be a professional and your criticism is being leveled at me because of things that I cannot change fundamentally. And you are linking that to my ability to be successful in, in, in my industry. That for me is problematic. And my question, you know, particularly when it happens in Chekhov, I mean, it was leveled at me in a Chekhov that I was not Jewish and therefore how could I play his, you know, this character's Jewish wife. And I thought, but nobody else on stage is Russian. How can they mm. be playing all these Russian characters? You yes. know, it's yep. like it's mm. the mm -hmm. the um the double standard is glaring yeah. to yeah. you know, and it's unexamined as well. And that that that's my problem yeah. is that it's unexamined in people because they can't actually face the fact that they might have some prejudice, they yeah. might have some preconceived yeah. ideas that they need to work. But through. as I say, I think the conversation is definitely shifting, and it's in a much better place than even you know. 
the example that I gave about the Chekhov and about um, being in As You Like It, you know, those were criticisms that happened in 2015. Even even in this in that five year mm. time frame, you know, I would be. I mean, I don't read criticism, but um, you know, I'd be surprised if somebody would be so bold to say those things. But I don't know. I could be wrong. But I I would hope yeah. that the conversation mm. is much more alive and there's Has enough. Moved, yeah. yeah, there's been a mm. shift. And, and certainly from this year, you know, I mean, we can see uh, pe- people can't be so asleep anymore, you know, after 2020. They just can't. You know, it's not possible. Mm. And, and people are getting more bold at calling it out as well, which I think is yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah. So, Zara, um, as you like it, uh, obviously playing Rosalind, big lead role. Uh, but then you were in Richard III as well for the Melbourne Theatre Company. What did you play in Richard? I played Catesby. And how was that experience? Because that was a big production, huge production values. It was a massive (laughs) production. Um, Ewan Leslie was playing Richard III. Um, Mm. It was massive and it was wonderful and it was actually a really big learning curve for me in terms of uh, performance and um, your function. So what I realised in a big sweeping play like that that also had a lot of edits. So Simon Phillips directed it and he had edited, I think, sections of, you're going to help me with this, James, sections mm. of Henry, this the third oh, Henry part Six, of Henry yeah. Six or something. Henry Six, He'd part three, taken yeah. mm-hmm. sections of that and put it into yep. bits mm-hmm. of the of Richard III to make more sense of some of the relational dynamics that were happening sure. between characters. Um, so with all of that as a caveat, it was a massive sweeping story. And a lot of Catesby's lines, the character that I was playing, who's supposed originally is played by a man, um, were edited down. But what actually happened was that my stage time went up. So I actually ended up being in scenes with Richard where Catesby wasn't necessarily written into those scenes. Um, so I actually didn't have that much text to do, but I was, on stage a lot with you with you and yeah. yes mm. and what that did for me as as an actor and i guess also in a shakespeare in terms of again what we were speaking about before in um with relation to um why does this happen or how does this happen or how does this person fall in love why would you you're much smarter than that you know it was that i realized what my function was in the telling of the story my function was to be the right hand man of this guy if he turned around he needed to see my face that was the first yeah. face he needed to see <laughs> and i would do you know that that was my job that was the thing mm. that i cared about to the nth degree and actually what that did was free up a lot of um the things that we can get hamstrung by in needing to explain things away or needing to um have reasons or justifications for why things happen. Um, yeah, it, it, it was, it was incredibly freeing to be able to just, you know, pick whether rightly or wrongly, right. Uh, just, just pick a function and go, that's my function. And also with when you're in, you know, I think also happen is a trap for actors going, Oh, it's a small role and I don't have many lines and, Oh, it's a bit, yeah. Being able to, find a function, stick to that, trust in it and play that out and, and see what happens. Yeah. It was, it was really rewarding and, and on a double revolve and 
Mm-hmm. It, was, yeah. <laughs> it was massive. I got trapped many times in inside oh. of set many times. Um, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been, I mean, you've had a lot of experience in massive productions, you know, those big musicals that you've been a part of, Book of Mormon, uh, as most recently. What's it like being being inside a machine like that? It's quite unlike any thing any other theatrical job that I've had being in well-oiled fully functioning commercial entities you're almost like a monk or an elite athlete or something you're just you're working on this schedule well for me at least and I think it was maybe a little bit different for me because I a I wasn't used to working with that rigor um for such a long time for the length of time of the show um so for me I needed to have the safety of the very clear structure around uh the timetable quite literally. So I didn't do anything else. I gave up alcohol. I gave up coffee. I didn't speak after the show. I had vocal, I had days of vocal rest. Actually, I did not speak on Mondays. I did not speak to people. I had to conserve my voice. And so the Mm -hmm. level of rigor that you have to have about your body and your voice and your, your, your actual instruments that you have available Mm. to you, Mm. having to have that rigor around it, is so like it and that's why that's why I'm comparing it to something like an elite athlete. Of course elite athletes do much more than just, you know, don't talk to people on Mondays. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying I'm the same as an elite athlete, but I imagine that the the commitment that you have to have to adhering mm. to the schedule. Um but it's also incredibly, you know, it's really sort of wonderful being in something like Book of Mormon where um you know, the show was successful and not having the pressure of needing to build something that people are going to judge and, you know, hate on everybody about or, oh, gosh, mm-hmm. are they going to mm-hmm. like it or not? Or, you know, it's incredibly mm-hmm. lovely to just be in something that you know and trust is good. It works. It's tried and tested. And yeah. you turn up and you do your job. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. it, there's something really wonderful about that. Um yeah, it was look, it was rewarding and challenging in the in the same measure being in a massive musical. Um I learned a lot about myself and I worked really really hard. Um and it was incredibly challenging to to do the same material, you know, for almost 2 years. Um mm-hmm. but I learned a lot um and I'm glad I did it. Brilliant. Zara, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. But just before we go, we've got a little segment called The Final Five, five quick questions for you. Yes. Here we go, number one. Okay. Okay. As an actor, Zara, do you like to be the lover or the villain? Villain, hands down. Okay, good. What do you think is your most underrated Shakespeare play? Um, uh, I think... I don't know why, but I have this thing about Richard, about um, Richard the Second, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, also King John. I don't oh, know King why. Oh, King John! Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever seen it put on King John? I've never seen. No, I mm. mean I've read, I've read King John maybe once, but I've reread a lot of Constance, and maybe there's something about me just wanting to be this person who goes, "I pull my hair mm, because my mm. son has died." You know, there's something. Yeah. They're so juicy. They're so epic. 
Um, yeah, I, I love that bit. And she, because she's talking to the the men are trying to gaslight her. They're saying you're mad, yeah. and she's saying no, I'm not mad. I'm I'm just really sad that my son is dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so a beautiful. Those role. two, yeah. and maybe when it's underrated, I don't know. Are they underrated or just maybe underperformed? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Zara, who's your favorite actor you've never worked with who you'd love to work with? Um, how long have you got? Go on. <laughs> Give us a few. <laughs> um, look, I think maybe because she's just in the zeitgeist at the moment, but Olivia Coleman is just, mm-hmm. I mean, since Broadchurch, I'm just like, I mean, it's never going to happen, but well, maybe it might. <laughs> why but, not? you know, why not? <laughs> Olivia, let's play. Um, but um, in terms of locally, um, people like Deb Mailman and Yael. I was actually in a play with Yael, but yeah. we didn't have any mm. scene work together. We didn't right. actually get to do any acting together. And so mm. I'd really love to work with Yael, like in a concentrated way. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, people like um, Leah Purcell, Mandy McElhinney, Kate mm. Box. There's a lot. There's a lot of people out Sounds there. Sounds good. Sounds good. Hey, Leah Purcell's come up quite often, actually, in this ah, segment. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. Leah, yeah. we're coming for you. That's right. <laughs> Zara, what's your dream Shakespeare role you'd love to play one day? I've always wanted to play Iago, mm. like mm. always, um, for all of the obvious reasons that everybody wants to play Iago. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, also... Uh, Inspired by Jennifer Hagen, actually from mm. Richard the Third, she had to. She played Queen Margaret oh, from yeah. from um, the third part of Henry VI. Henry VI, yeah. yeah. Um, and she was so scathing in it, and I was mm. just like, oh gosh, I'd love to do a bit of Queen Margaret. She just goes, she goes around killing everybody. Yeah, it's she? delicious. She's just assassinating it's a, people. It's a juicy role, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah. So something about Queen Margaret, I'd like yeah. to try. And Zara, finally, if you weren't an actor or a singer, what would you be doing? Um, I would probably be a political scientist. Oh, yeah. With, um, you know, a second language already under my belt. Do you speak multiple languages? Um, no. I mean, I speak a little bit of Spanish. Yo hablo español un poquito. Okay. Um, but not enough to be like, I speak Spanish. <laughs> I can <laughs> I can fake it till I make it a little bit. Um, and I speak like, I speak Creole, but it's not, it's not, te- it's a dialect rather than a, rather than a, another language entirely. Okay. Yeah. Zara, it has been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining me on Speak the Speech. Thank you. Thank you, James. It was wonderful. Well, that was the final episode of this first season of our podcast. We'll be back in 2021 with more exciting guests celebrating some of Shakespeare's greatest speeches. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory, and we are thrilled to be returning to the stage in 2021, presenting Hamlet, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and John Bell's One Man in His Time. Go to bellshakespeare.com.au to book a season package or to find out all the ways you can support our work. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform or get in touch with us at marketing at bellshakespeare.com.au to tell us who you'd like to hear on the podcast. I'm James Evans and I hope you'll join me again on Speak the Speech in 2021.